Kia ora and welcome to the Creative Matters podcast, where we have inspiring conversations with New Zealand artists. I'm your host, Mandy Yakich. These conversations are intimate, uplifting and insightful. The guests on the show have absolutely enriched my life and I'm sure their stories will have the same effect on you. Thank you so much for joining me to listen to these amazing people speak about what drives them, the way they work, and their personal takes on life. Hi, and welcome back to Creative Matters. This week I'm speaking with Scott Laurie. Scott is an art lover, writer, entrepreneur, and the owner and director of the Scott Laurie Gallery in Tamaki Makaurau, Auckland. The Scott Laurie Gallery aims to connect hearts and minds when it comes to encountering and experiencing contemporary art. They proudly show a range of emerging mid-career and internationally renowned artists from around the world, with a focus on New Zealand, Australia, and the wider Moana region. You know, the work can be hung anywhere, right? I can put the work in my kitchen, I can put it in the gallery, I can put it in here, I can put it in an institution. Now, the context of where you're showing it changes the perception of that work Mm. and how it's perceived and how it's valued. I'm really interested in that. I'm really interested in the transmogrification that happens when you take a painting that you've done in your studio and you lean it against the wall and then you put it up in the gallery. Why is it suddenly culturally more important? I ask him the tough questions that I'm sure every artist would like to know, from whether he thinks a dealer gallery is the holy grail for every artist and how to approach a gallery to dealing with rejection and NFTs. I'm sure you're going to enjoy meeting Scott and hearing his amazing story. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. It's very lovely to meet you. And you. Thank you so much for coming out here. Ah, It's a beautiful drive and it's a beautiful spot. Well done. I think you've done a terrific job in here. Thank you. Yeah, it's definitely a labour of love and a a little passion project with me and my husband. So, uh, yeah, welcome to Murawai and welcome to Creative Matters. Thank you. I know how busy you are, so really appreciate your time. Thank you. Busy with Art Fair. Art Fair is coming up and uh, that's a full-on job. That's yeah. going to be 12 hours a day next week. Really? But very exciting. Yeah, it's the biggest, it's the biggest event in this part of the world. So it draws in about 10,000 people from all the big collectors in New Zealand. And you get access to everybody's VIP list. Mm. So I'm getting collectors walking through that I would never normally um, get to experience the work of the gallery. So that's a big thing for us. Very exciting. But this is more exciting. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Even more thrilled. This is lovely and relaxing. So, Scott, um, you're a very interesting person. I know you've had a fascinating life. And I've heard amazing things about you from lots of different people. Oh, shucks. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing like a bit of pressure. Can you tell us about your childhood and where you were born and where you went to from there? So I was born in Edinburgh in 1970. Actually, the other week I was, I worked out when I was conceived and I think it was the night of the moon landings because I was born <laughs> on April the 6th, 1970. And if you go to Google and check out the night you were conceived, 
you know, there was a rather more modest lodge happening in the southern suburbs of Edinburgh at that time <laughs> in Mordenville View. And um, yeah, I was born the following April. So I was born in Edinburgh in um, a suburb called Morden. And Morden's on the southeast fringe of Edinburgh. And it's a housing estate, what you'd call state housing. Um, and I was the youngest of five kids. And there were seven of us in the house. Now, this house, very typical sort of Coronation Street house with um, high-rise flats, we used to call them. So mm. that was the way, when there was an exercise in modernism, actually, in the 60s and 70s, where they would do these sort of vertical villages. That was the utopian ideal. What actually came out was substandard you know, shitty housing in high-rise blocks. So there were six of those, and mum lived in the little row of houses in front of the top two. So it wasn't the best of childhoods. It was a really tough childhood. You know, my father was an alcoholic, and he was an ex-army guy, worked for the coal trucks for a while, like my grandfather did. And then he became a carpet fitter. Mum was a cleaner. And a dinner lady. So that's what she did all her life. She had five kids and I was the baby. So there was five kids. I was the youngest and there was two years apart from each of us to the eldest kid. So seven of us in this little state house in front of the high rise flats um, in, in this in this sort of suburb. How I ended up in art, I will never know. But I actually theorized quite a lot about that. And I think it was an escape. I think if you're working class, if you're a working class kid, you know, you, you're not going to escape that background on an economic level, naturally. You're going to be at a disadvantage to begin with. The opportunities that middle class and wealthy kids get that come their way are going to be a lot more. The, the, the ratio is going to be a lot higher than what you're going to get as a working class kid. So art and sport are really good ways to sort of get out, mm. you know, if you've got a modicum of talent. And... um what was really interesting for me in my relationship for art was I I did see it as an escape from from that background. You know, you're, you're witness to a lot of things. My, my dad being an alcoholic, he had a lot of mental health issues. And in a tiny little house, 78 square meters, with seven people living in it, there's not a lot of escape. So so art became a form of my escape. And I, and I was encouraged by my high school teacher, Jim Dale, his name was, and he was a terrific um, teacher. He opened up possibilities for me through art that I, I didn't realize mm. could have existed. You know, mm. Suddenly I had this portal. And I talk a lot about art as a portal. When you view art as a portal through time and a portal through space, I think, to an emotional connection or a perspective to another human being. And, and, and that's good because it, it kind of typifies escape. It allows you to go somewhere else. It allows you to see the world through separate eyes. Mm. So if you've got this background, if you're in this house where there's not a lot of money, there's a lot of social issues, there's a lot of drugs and alcohol around, our, our, our office a terrific mm. escape from escape, that. Escape, yeah. Mm. And it's at, at high school, were you, were you starting to make work of your own? I had always been quite... I'd always been quite artistic. I mean, mum tells this really interesting story where I was five or six years old and, and we were all told to draw a tiger. And I drew my tiger face on as if he was going to pounce out the frame. And mum said, you know, she says, the art teacher was really mesmerized by this. She says, because kids usually do the tigers on their sides. Mm, so and she says, and, and this, yeah, and I was quite intrigued by that. Mm. Um, but no, I'd always been, I'd always enjoyed the, the, 
practice of art. I mean, I was never that great. I was colorblind, which is, is and I don't tell many people that. In fact, this is probably the first time I've said it publicly because you, <laughs> <don't incredible>. <laughs> you don't want to run an art gallery when you're colorblind. <laughs> and uh, anyway, eventually that encouragement through high school eventually ended up um, with me creating a portfolio to get into Edinburgh College of Art. So I did my first undergraduate degree there, my, my honours degree there as a painter and a printmaker. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I did three years as a, for, for a Master of Philosophy in Art. So I took it more into the theoretical side. Wow. And then once, uh, and then that, that gave me a particular level of escape. And then I felt very free. I cut the umbilical cord then mm. to... Um, to more than <laughs> yes and so where did you head from there were you kind of desperate to head to london or what well was, what was your goal it's interesting i looked my art teacher at the time and said i said what are the good art schools you know and he said well chelsea's quite good so i toddled off on the bus i did overnight bus down to chelsea and um got an option to study there but the reason i ended up in edinburgh because i just thought well Friends and family are there, but I definitely wanted to move out of the house. Mm. So I got student digs and chose Edinburgh. And um, it was a good training because Edinburgh is a very formal training. Um, they're very unlike the art schools now, which are, you know, find your idea and then find a method to execute that idea against. Whereas Edinburgh, and to a lesser extent Glasgow, but still in the same kind of European tradition, is you you had no permission to do anything abstract. You had to draw from the life cast. You had to do anatomy classes. You drew Greek and Roman sculpture. Really? Yeah. You tried anything new and they would say, you've not earned the right to do that. You know, you're running before you can walk. So, And that traditional training comes in so, um, so, so useful when you're running an art gallery because it allows you to read works. It allows you to differentiate between between the thing you're looking at and engage it somehow mm. you know if I, if I showed you a painting if I showed any of your listeners a painting two or three paintings I said tell me the difference between them how are you reading these works you know hopefully a few of them would say well compositionally that one is stronger than that one or their use of materials in this one is much better and here's why so you've got to be able to answer those questions as a gallerist I think mm. when you're talking about the work after art school, I, I couldn't get a job. I'd been there for seven years, had massive debts. I studied law at Edinburgh University. And during my study, um, my friend got a job in an ad agency. And it was really the advertising part of that. I escaped. I came, jumped out of law, went into advertising, and that took me around the world. And I came, I came back to art many years later, but I'd always connect, collected and everything. Um, and why do you think, I mean, how did the actual collection of artworks start? Well, it's, there's a real tension when you start to collect art because you suddenly think, well, I've become the petty bourgeois people that I've hated since I was young. Hmm. You know, art, art tends to be a very middle-class pursuit. Um, most amazing collectors, most most fantastic collectors tend to have great wealth um, and not always great taste. You know, they are told what to buy. Mm. That's endemic, by the way. That's endemic across all the... Most, just because you've got money to spend on something does not mean you have your own taste. Mm. You're often told what to buy. There's very, very few people actually that can go out there and, and really critique a work. The brand positioning of the gallery is um, to connect hearts and minds. 
And that's really important because the heart part that you mentioned, the subjective part, this is how I feel about this piece. That's really unique. And that's really important when you look at a work and you go, oh, that, that's speaking to me mm. in a way. One of the terrific and beautiful mysteries of art is, you know, why does something speak to some people and not others? Mm. Something to do with your life story, I guess, or my life story, or that person's life yeah, story. Yeah, what you're connecting to. But the, the, the other balance to that, the counterbalance to that, and it's quite important, is the minds part, which is, you know, what in this painting, either on a formal level, that is how you read it, you know, what I mentioned earlier on, compositionally, through style, through place, where would you place this in art history? Is it a part of a movement? That rational part is quite important. It's, 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 people want to know that as well. It's, you, you look at something, you go, oh, I love that. And then I think my job as a gallerist is to sort of help you understand why it's relevant to the culture that we're living in at this moment in time. Mm. So you do the heart part, I feel this way, and you do the head part, which is here's why it's relevant or interesting. Mm, that's so interesting. And so what would you recommend artists do or, you know, how do you think artists should approach their making with that in mind? You know, they, they need to make... Uh, and leave that other part to other people. You you can sense art that's self-conscious, and there's a lot of it around. The, 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 one of the saddest parts about the New Zealand art world is there's a lot of galleries, there's a lot of people in the arts, and what they do is they create, they intentionally create mystery around the artwork. They are intentionally trying to build something around it. Always feels really self-conscious to me. There's... Um, it's not so much that they're using gimmicks or trying to hide things. It's just the way they're presented. They're sort of manipulated. They're talked about in such a way that they're slightly baffling. If you look at our texts in this country, um, there are very, very few good art writers in New Zealand. New Zealand, of all the countries I've lived in and I've lived in four, um, the standard of art writing in this country is abysmal. And that is because young people coming through are particularly guilty of this is they see very obtuse texts and they therefore think that you know they're not going to write about the artwork in a way that um tries to explain it or tries to bring people into it what they try and do and it always it always pisses me off is they try and go right what I'm going to do is I'm going to write an essay around this artwork based on the same theme. So the form of my essay is going to somehow blur the edges of this artwork as opposed to looking at it critically and say, well, this is why it's interesting or this is why it's relevant. And I cannot stand that type mm. of art writing. And they use all these weird words, these buzzwords. After art school, I went into advertising and I worked as a language specialist for 25 years. I don't tell that to a lot of people. Um, I worked in language. And it was real cutting edge language research. And what we would do, so for example, big companies would come to me and say, what role do emojis have in our everyday life? Should, should we allow emojis to come into our communication spectrum? Mm. So they were asking, and I'd have to go away and research that and come back and present to the board and say, this is where language is at at the moment. Um, and then you come back into the art world and I can sniff the bullshit a mile away. Yeah. There is an awful lot of smoke and mirrors bullshit in art mm. language, you know, and it needs to stop. It does not make, you know, they think that clarity and simplicity are somehow old fashioned. Yeah. And clarity and simplicity is what's needed most in art because otherwise we're making it irrelevant to everybody. Art is dying. That's right. And yeah, what you're saying about being irrelevant to people, I, I just think, 
a lot of the what you know how a lot of people feel they can't access art or they can't get it or you know it doesn't make sense to them it's I think a, a lot of that is down to the language that is connected with with artwork Ab- absolutely art is dying and the people in art are the people responsible for its death they they there's this really interesting thing when you hear the institutions talk, the taxpayer-funded institutions and the taxpayer-funded curators in them. And they stand up and say all this great kind of lip service to what's happening in the arts, but I think they fail on a fundamental level of communication. Some people do it very, very well, um, and accessibility. They don't make it easy. How many art galleries have you walked into? Even within my sector, how many art galleries have you walked into and somebody's behind a white desk in a white room with very stark lighting. And they'll tap on the keyboard or they'll come up to you in a black dress or a black suit and they'll say, are you okay? Hello. How are you? You know, you, you okay there? And you go, yep, just having a look. Thanks. They go, okay, well, just ask me if you need to know anything. And thanks very much. And they go back and sit behind their computer and tap into it. I think that's terrible. <laughs> I think it's such a disservice. It's like you'll get better service in a car dealership. You know, you'll go and it's like. Yeah, that's so true. Uh, you know, let me talk you through the artwork. May I talk, can I introduce you to an essay? Can I give you some mm. references for this? Or are you just happy having a wee look around, mm. you know? The first thing I do in the gallery, the very first thing I do is I get my bum off that seat and I walk to the door and I meet and greet every single person that comes in. I explain the gallery layout, I explain the shows that are on and I offer them. I said, do you want me to give you a wee tour? Are you quite happy to have a look? Or alternatively... Come into the kitchen at the end and let's have a talk about the show. They're, they're my favourite ones. Mm. And when there were young people, I often say to the young people, walk around, let me come back in, but don't leave without telling me your favourite piece in the gallery and your least favourite piece in the mm, gallery. I love that. And, that, and it's really good because if nothing else, everybody has a favourite. Yeah. And everybody has one that doesn't work for them. Yeah. And I am totally, of course, they're the same, it's the same coin, right? They're both sides of the same coin. Mm. The validation for artists is people viewing their work and and having an opinion on it, whether it's good or bad. They do not care. Most artists just go, they were engaged with that. That's right. I think it's really good. Rather than just walking through and leaving again, which is terrible for us all. Yeah, and I love that posing that question. That's just, that's so cool because it's not, that's not too threatening for people either. No, especially for young ones. So we we re- I put a huge emphasis on people bringing their kids into the gallery and young people coming in and people that would never normally come in. Because if you can make the experience of an art gallery universally accessible, they will take that feeling anywhere in the world. Mm. Yeah, and I, 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 coming back to that point I made about art is dying, you know, visitor numbers across the world in the arts are declining. You know, very, very few people are coming into um, dealer galleries now. Um, I don't know what the stats are like for visitor numbers. I'm sure there's a lot of tourists that still go to the institutions. But generally, most people don't care about art. You know, that's a really horrible, hard fact. But most people don't care about art. Only there's a very, very small percentage of us around the world who really, really care about art. My family could not give a shit about art. None of them except my mum have been in the National Gallery of Scotland. And that's a taxpayer funded institution paid for by their wages, you know? And yet none of them have ever been in because they're not interested in it. Mm. And I think that's perfectly, perfectly valid. Yeah. But we make it worse. The people in the arts somehow tend to think it's a sort of 
it's the high arts. It goes back to Victorian times, you know, with the high arts, you know, opera and fine art. I mean, what a ludicrous notion, you know, mm. the notion of, oh, well, there are fine arts and then there's craft. <laughs> yes, I know. That fine art definition is very strange to me. And do you think, I mean, is it actually that people are less interested or is it that some of our platforms are changing? Like there's work online and there's Instagram and, you know, there's other ways of seeing art, artist-run spaces, that kind of thing. Oh, I, I, I think artist-run spaces are really important. Um, uh, again, because I think they're, they're grassroots. They're, 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 there's no purpose in artist-run spaces um, kind of trying to present themselves as anything other other than what they are and what they do so I've got I've got a lot of time for them there's a lot of artists who work very very hard in those mm. spaces as well um accessibility is a massive issue you know uh, uh, in art but I, I would sort of how I frame it and you 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 mentioned something very early on about you know what what would you say to artists um that get rejected by a gallery because we, we we get possibly um, in the gallery, uh, six to eight applications a month. We get PDF sent to us with lots of work in it. And I've got 19 representations, which is bursting at the seams. I cannot mm. take any more on. And yet you think, well, gosh, if we're getting that many applications, there is a lot of artists out there who are not being presented at the moment. And how, how I like to describe it to artists is it's a bit like, a, think of it more like a magazine with an editorial policy. Now, you wouldn't send poetry into, a, you know, a nature mag necessarily. Mm. And you, but you wouldn't send photos of your kind of, you know, the birds in your garden to um, uh, an art magazine. You know, it's, mm. it's, so, so think of it as editorial. And what we're looking for is something that fits the premise or the register of the gallery. And what I mean by the register is the visual register of it. That's often informed by the individual's taste, you know, and that's one of the real privileges of being in a gallery where you go, that appeals to me, that doesn't. Uh, I wrestle with that because it, it, per, on a personal level, I wrestle with that quite a lot because it's very indulgent to go, oh, well, I'll take this artist on because I like them. And occasionally I have to test myself and say, well, I'm going to take risks on this one. Um, I described the gallery the other day as an artist who says, you know, Artists talk a lot about their practice and the gallery is my practice and I get things wrong all the time. You know, it's, it's, it's a living embodiment of my relationship to art mm. and sometimes it works really well and sometimes it doesn't in the same way that, you know, you're a, you're a painter and you know that you, some stuff works for you and you go, oh, that just feels fantastic. But nine out of ten probably don't. Mm. You, know, you probably go, well, that never worked. And I think one one of the joys of art is 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 one of the few places we have left to make mistakes and nobody to hassle us. You know, artists for making mistakes. Mm. I'm 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 fed up seeing artists coming in with four perfect works, whereas what I want to see is a shoebox full of ideas, most of which never worked, because the hunger of, you know, trying to resolve something. Or the hunger of that inquiry is more important to me than three or four really nice finished mm, that's pieces. That's so interesting. And so, how would how do you like to see the artists who are coming to approach you? Yeah, it's it's the best answer when you're under under time pressure. Um, uh, it's a lot to ask a gallerist to 
come in and have an hour of their time and mm. I'm, and I, and I uh, you know, I don't, I don't mean that in a kind of flippant way. It just gallerists are really, really busy people. Um, and you know, all the gallerists in, in New Zealand are pretty competitive. It's quite a bitchy, um, scene you know i i don't actually enjoy the art industry much in new zealand i find it's very closed it's very cloak and dagger there's a lot of smoke and mirrors it's not very it's not particularly i don't think it's a particularly honest industry either why is that do you think i just think there's a lot of smoke and mirrors there's a lot of closed conversations people have agendas you know they really do there are lots of decisions made behind closed doors and secret deals and weird handshakes going on and, and it's um i can't even be bothered with that side of the mm. industry whatsoever however what i would say is there's some of the most hard-working people i've ever met and most art dealers in this country are not rich there's this really weird myth that we're all driving around and sort of you know um sports cars and milk and it most of us struggle to meet our mortgage payments and i can i can tell you that hand on heart it doesn't look like that from the outside because we present ourselves as sort of you know in the art world mm. where there is heaps of money you know 30 million dollars worth of art being sold at auctions in in the past 13 months in new zealand you know that does not filter down to to dealer galleries and commercial galleries i can mm. tell you that right now yeah. but they're good i've got a lot of time a lot of respect for the gallerists because they are the ones that are putting a lot of their personal stuff on the line in order to do it you know i think we're all we've all got a screw loose up there somewhere i think that's our, our common factor as gallerists in this country is you've got to be slightly crazy to be able to to be able to pull it off month after month mm. the work that they put into it and the, it's a thankless job you know uh, the institutions are not buying up a lot of work from dealers. They have their favourites. They're preordained, you know, the, the galleries that they sort of buy from because they're often working with curators in those institutions. They don't... It's very interesting in the art world in that art is not the most important thing in the commercial art world. And that, to the day I die, that will be the biggest insight that I... I learned about the art world. Really? Is the so art what, is, what is it? They're not, it's everything else. It's ego mm. and it's positioning and it's ego and it's especially money, but it is not art. Don't, 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 that, that, that is a complete fallacy in New Zealand. That is a they very sad state they, of affairs. They, they pretend it is. They pretend it's all about art and the artist. The art and the artist do not sit high up in that triangle. Money, ego, agendas, they all come first. And mm. art is way, way down the list. And what we tried to do at the gallery is sort of invert that. And it's been very, very difficult because you don't get the same level of buy-in. Mm. You know, so, you mm. know, as I mentioned earlier on, we've, we've never had one institutional sale. So, so what I mean by an institutional sale is we've never had a sale to a taxpayer-funded art gallery in this country in five years. N my, my Australian friends and my British friends in London cannot believe that. And... You know, the institutions say, well, it's all about budgets. We have this committee that you go through and everything. But half the time, it's there. It's, it's there. Half the time, there are decisions made for reasons that you'd probably be very surprised about. Mm. You know? And I guess they have their favourite dealer galleries, and there's quite a sort of symbolic Absolutely. It's a closed relationship. shop. It's absolutely closed shop. Yeah. But what's interesting, the younger generation of artists coming through now see this, and they actually don't want to take part in those institutionalized competitions or awards or they didn't want to take part in that 
because they feel it's too myopic mm. and um, it's too self-centered and too self-congratulatory. A lot, and that's why digital, for example, is is a really interesting space. It's far more egalitarian, and and in fact, the, the really interesting thing is there. Are, if you look at the curators that work for the public institutions, very very few of them, very few of them, have an interest in new forms of experimental art like digital because they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to assess it. They don't know how to show it. They don't know how. They don't know what the conversations mm, are around yeah. it, how it's made. You talk to a nineteen-year-old artist who's in that space; they know their stuff yeah. intimately inside out. So they're bypassing all this stuff because they're going, "Oh, it's all a bit bullshit, isn't mm. it? It's all a bit hierarchy-driven and a bit money-driven. A bit old school. A bit old school. Bugger that! You know, we're doing digital. We're into AR. We're into generative art. We're into AI. Yeah. And I think there was a wee bit panic about it in the market. It was very funny. We we wanted to take Fountain, which is. So the Scott Laurie Gallery, which is a business, and I have a separate business that I'm a partner in called Fountain, completely separate. But Fountain has a wall in the gallery, a big, big screen attached to it. And what Fountain does is a, a platform for digital art only. So there's no painting and sculpture. It's only digital art. We applied to take that to Auckland Art Fair, Aotearoa Art Fair mm. now, in 2023, and the selection panel rejected it. Um, they rejected it on the basis that, you know, well, we didn't want to bring NFTs into the fair and, you know, it feels a bit like sort of posters and still images. And on one level, I agree with them. You know, there's a lot of terrible art in the NFT world. People get very confused about what an NFT is. They think an NFT is an actual artwork. It's not. It's just the it's just the the mechanism by which you prove the provenance. It's a digital stamp, you know, mm. it's a digital. But this thing around the move to digital is quite interesting. Mm. Um, it's far more egalitarian. It's far more grassroots and, um, and, and very, very exciting. It seems to be that the establishment art stuff likes to play in sculpture and performance and being all the high art stuff. And it's so, it's become so myopic. It's collapsing in and its own self-importance, whereas you've got this really, really exciting stuff happening with kids making it in their bedrooms. You know, mm. it's just so much more interesting. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. It's fascinating. And you, you do kind of wonder over time if if the art world is going to change, you know, the face of the art world will change and that some of those young people coming through will bring a different dynamic totally, to the, it. Uh, t- completely. The, the art world will die. The art world's dying already. You know, it's all propped up with people that have self-interest in it. So what happens is you go, they're pretending that it's somehow really, really valuable and it's moving on. You know, life outside mainstream art galleries is moving at a hundred times the pace of what an art gallery is moving at. They're becoming, they're becoming fossilized relics of culture. Mm. They're not even that interesting. They're not looking at the vanguard anymore. They're, they're kind of looking at the rear guard. They're kind of looking at life through the rear view mirror now. Mm. Um, I find that really sad. So, so we we dismiss most of those. You know, we just we we we. I, I say to younger galleries starting up who who are obsessed by this about you know we need something blah 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 we need and maybe they could get in for the Walters Prize eventually and it's like ignore all that stuff, ignore it. It'll just lead to heartbreak. Mm. Go and go and explore these new forms of art because they're far more accessible, far more interesting, and none of them have an agenda. Mm. You know? Yeah. So interesting. I mean, Scott, I feel like there's a hundred million things to be talking about. Oh my goodness. (laughs) I feel like we could go for three hours. Can you take us back, Scott, to your art school days and um, take us through the journey from there? After art school, I 
got a job in advertising. Went, went to study law, got a job in advertising. That took me around the world. Uh, went from Edinburgh to Glasgow, worked in Glasgow for a while, then worked in London for a year and went back to Glasgow. Then Sydney, I was in Sydney for 14 years. Uh, during that 14 years, I did two years in Wellington. So we launched uh, Kiwi Bank. Um, oh, wow. And yeah, rebranded the Royal New Zealand Air Force. I was meant to be here for six months and ended up staying for a couple of years. Fell in love with New Zealand, fell in love with Kiwis. But my partner at the time, he was um, really missing the big city action in Sydney. So we went back there. I went back there for 10 years. And then uh, I came back on my own um, to New Zealand seven years ago. And I've been mm-hmm. here oh. ever since. Yeah. Wow. And you became very famous in New Zealand. With um, Grand Design. World famous in New Zealand. World famous in New Zealand. (laughs) (laughs) And and you were actually, you you built a house at um, Pākari. Pākari. And that was um, on Grand Designs, the first New Zealand season. Was. Yeah. So how did that happen? So So what happened was I broke up with my partner in Sydney and it was a devastating breakup. It was a really difficult one. And, and, I was getting a bit of therapy at the time for a number of reasons and I was drinking very heavily and I thought, you know, this is this is not the way of coping. And I remember the the psychologist said to me, he said, you know, what 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 would you like to do if you could reboot your life? What would you actually love to do? You know, what it could be anything, you know, singing an opera, blah, blah, blah. And I said, Well, I've always wanted to build a house. And um and I said, uh, you know, I, I really want to leave Australia, but I'm not ready to go back to Scotland. And I didn't join New Zealand. And he said, why don't you build a house in New Zealand? And that's what happened. I sold my business at the time. Um, one of the big agency groups uh, offered me good money for it, which is fantastic. So I took that money and I invested it in New Zealand and I built the Packery House, which was a terrific project, you know, a yeah. really good thing to focus on for a year. And it did that with a lot of humour. And um, you have to build houses with a lot of humour. Yeah, you, you um, do. <laughs> uh, or it will kill you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it cost a lot of money. But I lived. I loved living there. It was five years there, mm. me and we Skippy, a wee dog. And um, we had a lovely time. I, I did get a bit lonely. So after five years, I decided to sell. And then I came down to Auckland. Couldn't afford Auckland Central, so I went out to Huya. Beautiful. Um, it's a beautiful part of the world. Yeah. Not far from here, actually. If you mm. go on the beach and walk for As an hour, you'll eventually reach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and that, that, that's how I sort of ended up. Um, uh, how I got back into art is quite interesting because I'd always collected over the years. And when I say collected, it sounds very grand. I mean, I just always supported young artists. I, I would go to galleries and sort of pick up, uh, you know, smaller works and the the more I got into it, the more it's, it's, it's kind of like when you start getting into wine, you know, you start mm. off at sort of $15 a bottle and then you eventually get up to $50 a bottle because you go, well, I've sort of done that. You can understand the levels of, you know, yeah. your taste changes. And art's a bit like that as well. There, there's a certain level of artist where, you know, the price starts to go up because mm. culturally they're a bit more valuable, you know. Mm. Um, so it's very interesting. I'd always collected art. And what were you looking for when you were collecting work? That's a really good question. What I look for, um, I think I have quite a strange aesthetic. I mean, somebody said to me once, you know, they said, "Oh, you like the ugly stuff," and I sort of do like art, which is visually interesting and new, as opposed to seductive in 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 a 
in a sense which is, is designed to suck me in through something being very pretty. Now, I like prettiness in art, but I also question if that's a place in order to do pretty. You know, I think beauty doesn't have to be pretty, mm. for example. Mm. And if I want to do something that's really pretty, I, I then collect fabric or linen or something. So linen cushions, wallpaper, they are designed to be kind of enhance your life through the beauty of them. Um, artwork, personally, I don't think falls into the same category. I think art needs to ask bigger questions as opposed to allowing us passive beauty. Now, that's quite controversial. And of course, there is a role in the spectrum of art history for things that are just really beautiful. You know, if you were to do a straw poll and say to people, what are your top paintings? A lot of them would be because, you know, they feel something on that emotional level attached mm-hmm. to them. Um, I've, I've always been much more interested in sort of capturing something that you can never quite work out. Because it says something about the time we live in. I think the time we live in is very confusing. You know, um, I think we're coming into a stage of late capitalism where things are disintegrating. And I want to see that reflected in artworks. I I don't, the notion of art as an answer for anything is long gone. You know, it's just about asking questions now. And if you ask questions about the time we're living in, you see some interesting results because you know if you think about what's happened in the past five six ten years even you know with trump with brexit the world you know the war in ukraine most recently the world is feeling very fractured the world's feeling like a mm. dangerous place and the pandemic as well. yeah yeah the pandemic absolutely mm. i mean covid chucking that into the middle of this mix people were feeling very nervous and rudderless and and they didn't have any direction in life and Art was always something that could build around you as a bit of it. You know, it would insulate you sort of thing from all those wild things that are happening in the world. People still collect that way. They want art as insulation. Um, I'm much more interested in grabbing it because I go, well, it's, it's focusing on something in the here and now. Um, that that has its own trends. You know, if you look at conceptualism at the moment and cold, cold hard conceptualism, I think is... Is, is had its day at the moment. I don't think people want that. Actually, quite controversial in our world and saying, I don't think people want to be that intellectually challenged at the moment mm. um, because I think they've been so beaten up by life that they actually just want a place where they can enjoy something or have a bit of, um, you know, I can understand that insulation thing around wrapping mm. yourself something yeah. a bit familiar, you know, in a yeah. world that feels very... So pottery, for example, the reason pottery and ceramics have gone off the dial in terms of popularity is I think it's to do with the physicality of it, that the tangibility of it, that you can touch something, you can see the hand of the maker in it. And therefore, to me, that leads to a thought around, is that because people want human connection? They can see the human in the artwork. And I love that, but I talked earlier on about this notion of art being a portal. And, you know, Sal- Sally Gabori, who we represent the estate of, is the reason her paintings are so popular is because she was brought up on a tiny little island, 13 kilometers by 10, Bentink Island in the Gulf of Carpentaria. Her paintings are so bright and beautiful and, and people respond to them in a way, um, you know, that's deeply personal and they connect to her. Now, where else in our life are we going to have an experience of growing up on a sandbar island in the Gulf of Carpentaria? The answer is zero, mm. you know, but we can do that. We can have a glimpse of that. Mm. We can have a glimpse of life through her eyes, through through her works. 
So they become so art, art as a portal that way yeah. to connection to new experiences is really, really valuable. Mm. Now, if you take that same premise and take it into something a bit more political or a bit more kind of, um, you know, controversial, it, it, it works the same way, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And then going back to um, when you started your own gallery, which was the Vivian in Matakana. Can you tell us about that and then sort of how, how you went from there into Auckland and started your own Scott Laurie Gallery? So the Vivian was interesting because the Vivian existed and I, I lived on the hill in Packery and a few people had said to me, you've got to check out this art gallery called the Vivian. And I sort of, I was a bit naughty really because I sort of thought, oh, well, I'll eventually go into it because the galleries I'd seen up there were kind of quite cute, but they were... Yeah, you know, there were sort of, you know, it was it was knitted kiwis and that sort of thing. And I thought, well, it's nice, but I'm not really interested in it. And I remember walking into the Vivian for the first time and um, Helen owned it at the time. And I walked in, they had a Fiona Partington on the wall. And I thought, well, bugger me, you know, I'm in this kind of, I'm an hour from Auckland. And small I'm in this, village. Yeah, small village, purpose. Well, and there's a Fiona Partington on the wall. And, um, you know, uh, so, and, and there were some really interesting artists. So I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. And I mentioned to Helen at one point, I said, Helen, if you if you ever decide to sell this place, you know, get, give me a shout, you know. And and eventually she did, you know. A few months later, she says, yeah, I'm ready to retire now. And, you know, would you like to take it over? And did. it was difficult taking over a gallery like that, though, um, because the... The, the, there was a lot of artists involved in its running. And when you come in with a vision for how you want that to be, because otherwise it becomes too self-serving. Mm. Artists just put in their mates and it becomes this really nice group of friends. But it stops serving culture at a particular level when you just invite your friends and it becomes that myopic thing again. Mm. And I wanted to change the register of the Vivian. It did an awful lot brilliantly well. And it was, it was, it was hugely, um, I, I think the talent and the quality of the art that I showed was outstanding. I had a very, very strong community connection, which I tried to, um, really foster and, and keep. And I think we did that very well. We definitely kept that community aspect open. Um, there was a lovely earthiness to the Vivian, which I've tried to, which I tried to keep as well in the Scott Laurie Gallery, which is, um, to, I think it's that idea that white white box art galleries can be quite cold places. So we've always tried to, with the Vivian and with Scott Laurie Gallery, we tried to make them that wee bit more comfortable for people walking in. Mm. And I loved that about the Vivian. Um, they, they, one of the issues with it, though, was when you looked at the program on it, you just thought they were doing the same thing again and again and again. And I really wanted to change that. As soon as you go in and you want to change something in a community like that, people get upset. Yeah. Um, you come up to, with resistance. Completely. Well, well because yeah. of self-interest aren't being. Mm. People look after their own self-interest in mm. the arts. And it must be so yeah. hard to come to a gallery and, you know, you've got this group of artists that are connected to that gallery. If you, I mean, did you have to let some of the artists go? Or? I did, yeah. And that was yeah. hugely controversial. And and I never let them go because they weren't good artists. I just didn't think that the, the the conversation that they were having through the work was was not a conversation I was particularly interested in exploring. Mm. So it was never to do with the quality of 
the artist it's to do with the the positioning of the gallery what do you want it to achieve mm. it's not enough to sort of just set something up and see how it goes i, I don't operate like that i know other people do mm. you just say, so well i'm an empty vessel chuck into it and let let other people make sense of it but for me i just thought well, we've not got the time to do that we need to go in there and try and make some mm. points so i think we did i mean i mean it's it's very interesting somebody said to me the other day and they said you know a lot of people hated what you did at the vivian and I was a wee bit shocked at that, but I actually got in the car and I thought, that's quite good. That's quite good that people hated it. They're you know? engaging. It means, yeah, it means I'm, that's, that's all right. And Love what did and they hate, hate uh, about it, do you think? Yeah. And they didn't like the change, you know. I think they felt, they felt this terrific sense of ownership mm. around it. Um, but what cracks you up the most about it is it's all the people that the biggest complainers were the ones that had never, ever bought an artwork from the gallery. And so when we closed it with COVID, because we could not afford to open it, the running costs on that thing were monstrous. It was huge. And so we closed it during COVID because we could, it was not self-sustaining. We could not. We were going backwards really quickly. And I pointed out at the time, I said, well, you should have bought more stuff. And no point complaining about it all the time and then mm. never doing. And of course, that that. Our artists that are inherently selfish people because they put their art as inherently of the self you know it's i don't mean that in a disparaging way i mean that you know it's, it's a bit them mm. they put their life into the work Absolutely. then they have a show and they put their life on display there is nowhere for our artists to hide mm. you can't go oh, i did better ones last year you know <laughs> the thing you're looking at is is the output yeah you know? and that's the lo- reflection of yeah. the of the person so they do get very and, and i appreciate that i think you know i think that's that's fair enough that they put their life and soul into it mm. so when they come across something that sort of says oh we're not really interested in that we're going to be interested in this they get terrifically upset about mm. it you know it's very it's very interesting yeah and were you were you actually thinking i mean did you have ideas of becoming a, a gallerist you obviously have a had a good collection of your own so were you kind of thinking at some point that's something you might like to do or did the vivian just kind of come about and you thought okay i'm down a different road no i guess what was starting to happen was i'd seen I'd always, for 25 years, I, I, I lived around different countries in the world and, and you know, we go back to Europe a lot. So, so you would see, so I saw a lot of art and I saw a lot of art on an international level and you, you, you um, I, I, I guess one of, one of the interesting things about setting up a gallery was I didn't, what, let me let me come back one step. As as a collector, it was very easy for me to go in and run a gallery because I was I was showing the gallery the the artists that I was collecting that had no representation, and I found that really easy because mm. I built up those connections as a collector over the years, and I really believed in their work. So mm. there was a logical extension to that, which was you know let's let's show these people to the world and tell their story. Mm. And I did uh, read somewhere that you ran out of room in your own house, so you needed. A gallery space to uh, to put it in, yes. Yeah. Storage units, storage units are the bane of my life because <laughs> and now the collection is not growing at the at the 
you know, at an investment level, if you, for want of a better word, it's not growing. The, the, the storage cupboards are more expensive than what the collection is growing at. But that's all right. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't collect art for investment purposes. I never have. Mm. Uh, I, I've collected it because I fall in love with it, or it's making a really interesting point. You mm. Know? Mm. So interesting. So where to from here, Scott? So you. Started. How did you start up the uh, the Scott Laurie Gallery? So, so, so the Vivian closed in COVID, and that was really sad. And and you know, I was very traumatized. Actually, I had a bit of a breakdown. Uh, I was drinking very heavily on that. I had massive debt. I mean, the the no no every single artist got paid out. You know, nobody got there were no bills unpaid for the Vivian. That's um, I think it's very important to sort of uh, emphasize that because. When you close a gallery, there's a shed load of rumours that start to fly around, and um, nobody, nobody got. Everybody was paid mm. for what they want to do, so it was a very clean slate. And I actually got a call. I was I was ready to give up, and I got a call from a client, um, uh, Mark Bauer, um, and Mark and Deb had said, "Look, we've got a wee a wee floor under our um, under our building, and um, do you want to?" You know, do you want to share that with um, a photographer called Stephen Tilly? And you've got a wee room and you can share it and you can split the rent. And uh, would that help you get back on your feet? And I was like, well, well, let me have a wee think about it. My friends all said, of course, you must take it. You know, I'll get you back on your feet. So I started off in Grey Lynn, um, and I was there for a year and a half. And by that stage, I decided to sell the house and buy a warehouse in Mount Eden at the steelworks and convert that to an art gallery. I just thought, well, if I'm going to do it, you know, it's that whole thing about do it, do it once, do it well. Mm. So I convert Paul Clark, the architect who designed the Packery house, actually designed the gallery. Oh, wow. And uh, I live upstairs, which is, it's Jules' own, so I live upstairs, which is fantastic. Oh, that's I love brilliant. It. Yeah, yeah perfect. It's a lot of work. <laughs> it's amazing. And to have your own gallery with your name. Yeah, I mean, I was... The the reason I changed from the Vivian, of course, was to give that. I should have one of the lessons I learned from buying the Vivian was I should have instantly changed the name. Mm. I should have actually just closed the business that day and reopened it under another name. Mm. There was some good stuff that came from the legacy of the Vivian, but there was an awful lot of terrible stuff that came from the legacy of the Vivian, and you could you just could not. You could not escape that. So, so one of the lessons I would say to anyone taking over a gallery is changing the bloody name of the thing yeah. because all legacy comes with it, you know. Mm, and, that uh, makes sense. So that felt very free to be able to go to Scott Laurie Gallery and actually mm. go right. Oh, this is a a clean a clean slate with a completely mm. separate. And you did know. you start with your own collection in there? No, I, I um, but 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 with artists that I had collected, absolutely, yeah. But you're always picking up new artists and. You know, there are some galleries that work very closely with curators, as if curators are somehow the litmus papers of what's happening in the world. You know, most of them are extremely sheltered um, academics, you know, on taxpayer money. So they've not really got, and they don't go to galleries. They they don't, you know, you'd be really shocked if you knew how many curators in this country actually end up going to look at art galleries. And I have never had a curator come into my gallery and, yeah. and now you could argue that you could argue that oh well, Scotty only shows shitty art, so therefore I'm <laughs> not going to come in. But uh, I've had one one uh, non-official curatorial visit, and I have one of the directors uh, very recently. But until then, then wow. nothing. Can we start talking about? Are you ready to start talking about 
what the dealer gallery is and how it serves artists. Are we ready for this? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, so first of all, just for our listeners, how would you define a dealer gallery? I hate the word dealer gallery uh, because we're not dealing in anything at all. There are no deals taking place. The, 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 The only arrangement is, you know, you go into sort of business with your artists and you you take a 50-50 cut on everything after GST. So that's the basis for your business relationship on a on a on a commercial level. Um the rest of that and, and the re- then you select artists and then you give those artists shows and you market them in a particular way. But there are no crazy deals going on. You mm. know, it's literally you're presenting the work to an audience and the audience will decide whether it's right for them or not mm. or whether they will acquire that work. So there's no the uh, uh, dealer galleries has always thrown me. Mm, I just it's think always just, thrown me too, actually. Yeah. So a commercial gallery in town, um, how is that different to a dealer gallery? Well, they're not. They're the same. They're the same. They're both shops. You know, they're both yeah. retail. There's no. There's no. There's. And uh, I, I, I don't believe anyone that says anything differently. There are. There's probably extra depth to. Um, I mean, I'm a commercial guy. All dealer galleries are commercial galleries by mm. default. Um, there's, there are certain things you do that quality galleries do above and beyond chuck stuff on the wall and be a retail shop. And that is, you know, you are commissioning essays. You are um, presenting the work in a particular way. You're planning shows a year in advance. You're giving them group show opportunities. You're deciding who you're going to take to art fair and when. Um, you do talks. You do podcasts. You do um, films. So all of those things need um, they need consideration. I, 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 from my perspective, I take the cues that I learned in branding and apply them to artists. Mm. It's it's very interesting. There's a a very senior artist who said to me recently and very publicly and said, yeah, but what you do is you just do all this marking. It's really just about the marking, not about the art. And I think that's wrong. I think it, it, it fundamentally is about the art. But what galleries haven't been particularly good at is putting the layer of marketing on it. Now, when you market a brand, you the first thing you do is you go, well, what's the vision for the brand? Where does it want to end up and be? And what are the values of this thing? What's its personality? And then what's its story? What's its positioning in the world? Who is it talking to and why? Mm. And I, I try and do that with my artists. I try and go, well, this artist over here speaking, they're doing particular work. It's going to speak to a particular demographic over here. This artist over here is doing something very different. It's a different audience. Therefore, my marketing strategy for each of them will be different because they're set they're saying different things there's some you you know and that can come down to something as basic as demographic split so you know i have statistics because we measure so much digitally um around you know what is the gender split of people who buy stuff from the gallery it's, it's about 64 uh, percent women um who buys stuff, and I can tell their age as well. The sweet spot is forty-five to sixty-five, mm. um, which is a real bugbear for me because my visitation on Instagram and stuff, and through those digital social channels, is much much younger. Yeah, but the actual money being handed over, the bit that actually keeps you open, mm. is a much much older demographic, which I find quite interesting. Yeah, and we'd probably have more sales to women if it wasn't for the husband killers. <laughs> Don't get me started on the husband killers. Now, the husband killer is an interesting phenomenon where a woman comes in 
She'll fall in love with something, that subjective response. I love this. It speaks to me. I love it. I love it. I love it. I just need to get my husband over the line. And then the husband comes in and he never usually looks that impressed. And he's like, oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> and when it starts off like that, you think, I'm never going to get this over. And they do it a lot. I call them the husband killers because they just kill the joy in the room, you know. Yeah. Saying, oh, well. And if you really want it, you can. And she's saying to me, no, I really want you to love it as well. I was like, well, I don't love it. And then game over. That's oh, still gone. Isn't that sad? Yeah, quite interesting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's so sad. <laughs> Occasionally, though, the, the, the bloke will come in and go, I love it. It's fantastic. Mm. You know? It's really good. But um, yeah, That's so w- women interesting. definitely much more uh, open to a broader range of yeah. experiences in art. Yeah. yeah, that is really fascinating. You know, I do have a lot of questions here, but... Chuck him out, chuck him through. Chuck I'll, I'll, I'll be quick in my answers, I promise. So just back to the um, thinking about the, the different galleries. So you obviously do all these amazing things for your artists. Does that mean that the artist isn't able to show anywhere else? Well, well, that's a terrific question, and it's a very loaded question at the moment. The convention is that you would take an artist on and represent them, which means they are yours, uh, either for a particular geographic area usually North Island, at the very least Auckland. Um, The next layer down would be North Island. The next down would be the whole of New Zealand. So if you're represented by a gallery, you're going to be in one of those three spaces. Um, And that means if you want to buy something from that that artist, you, you generally go through that gallery. Now, that's very good. It's a very good system for, um, for making things slightly easier for people. I don't know, and this is where it becomes quite controversial, if it's actually the best thing for the artist. I'm I'm very, very curious to see models where we blow up the existing dealer model and say, what happens if you flipped it? So the artist is at the centre of everything and the artist gets to decide where they get to show, who they get to show with and when Mm. and why. Mm. That that becomes really interesting. But you mention that to other art gallerists in this country and they just a bit die. You know? yeah. They say it would never work. But I go, oh, maybe it needs to, maybe we need an Uber moment in the art world, you mm. know, where um, we need to actually put the power back to the artist to decide mm. <clears throat> where and when and whom they will show with. And how do you think that's happened that they've got such a monopoly over an artist? I think it's so hard to get into a gallery. You know, if, if I said to you earlier on about, we get so many applications from young artists desperate for somewhere to show their work. You know, that's the tragedy of it is, you know, for all the talk they they talk about in the art galleries, they they offer very little wall space to young artists coming through. Mm. Um, That's a real tragedy. There's not enough wall space for young artists. Mm. And Um, just with the way the gallery works with, you know, you might have a solo show if you're lucky and then you might not be seen in that gallery for months or you might be part of a group show and then you sort of come and go with a couple of works i mean does it does it mean being part of a dealer gallery that you have a lot less exposure i i i think that i think that's a very honest question and i think it's a very fair one and i I think you're right i think you for for all the benefits of representation it's massively flawed because my artists at the moment i've 19 and in order to give them a solo headline show, they're, they're getting one every 18 months. That is not a great way of having an artistic career because it feels very unfair for me to start marketing an artist through somebody else's show. 
that's the that's the trap that you fall into. You sort of say, well, we'll promote you really heavily during your show, but for the rest of the year, what do we do? We put you in the odd group show, we take you to art fair, but we can't suddenly start making artist films halfway through somebody else's show. It would be really rude to do that. Mm. It's it's a very interesting it's problem. It's really interesting. It's really yeah. interesting. And yeah. do you, I mean, is it sort of a, a thing that you are always promoting your artists who are with you and you're like if a collector comes in, they have a look at what's in the gallery at that time, but then you still take them to your other artists. I mean, is that something that's ongoing? Yeah, you, you do. You do. I mean, you top that the website, our website um, statistics for visitation are very, very high for conversion to sales are very, very low. And it's always really surprised me because we have, we, we invest a lot into our website and, um, and yet there's there's very few sales that come from that. There's very, very few sales that come through our stockroom. Um, that baffles other gallerists who say to me, you know, I sell most of my work through my stockroom. I never get asked. I never get, nobody ever asked to see anything in the stockroom, even if they've been offered. Mm. Uh, they tend to come into the gallery. They like to see it on our wall. Or they have a very specific artist that they want, but I, I, I've never kind of sussed that mm. out. Maybe, I wonder why that know. is. Or maybe I've just got a terrible eye, you know, I don't know. Maybe I've just got the worst eye in the business. I know? don't think so. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's interesting. I guess you're you're bringing people to your gallery because of what you've advertised. And so maybe they're just kind of in that tunnel of wanting to see what they're expecting and aren't ready for other, for other things. People do come on an... People have their favourite artists and they will support that artist and they will come into the gallery to see the show and they will probably buy a work. And then you might never see them again until that artist shows mm, again. It's, mm. it's quite fascinating. And so as a gallerist, are you always looking for artists who people know so that you have their following? <clears throat> no, don't know. I've, I've mo- most of my artists are unknown. Some mm. of my artists I've found on Instagram. And is and, that, I mean, that must make it hard for you financially, must make it harder. Oh, it's ridiculous. I mean, the 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 gallery runs a 1.4% profit margin. The gallery has never afforded me a wage in five years, which is why I get really pissed off at people when they have all these opinions about the gallery and what I should and should be doing and blah, 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 and you did this and you did that and you go, well, you know, I would understand it if it was taking out 250 grand a year taking out of the gallery, but every single dollar that that gallery has earned goes back into the gallery. Mm. Gallery, None of it has ever been extracted for me personally, ever. Um, in yeah. fact, that's why, that's why I, I still do branding consultancy on the sides and, and on a Monday in particular. Really? And uh, yeah, because that, that gives the income in order for me to pay the mortgage. The gallery has never served as my mortgage in four years. Well, and people would never realise that. It's, 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 if you if you think about how it works, I mean, there's, there's the side to running a gallery that nobody talks about is this: if I sell a work of yours for a thousand dollars, fifteen percent GST comes off immediately, whether you're registered for GST or not. So we have to do, the, the government says if you invoice a client, that fifteen percent has to come off. So we're now down to eight fifty, and then we split it fifty fifty. You're now getting four twenty five. If you look at the linen that you've used in your canvas, if you look at the stretcher, if you look at the lovely tray frame that you put around it, and your time, your expertise, and your creative vision, you're probably breaking even on that sale. From a gallery perspective, if you look at my rent, my rates, my insurance, the advertising that we do, the social media that we do, the films, commissioning the essays, um, getting the technician in, um, just paying my rates on a daily basis, I'm not making any money either. 
So mm. that's how, that's how dire it is at that level mm. with young artists, and why most gallerists need one or two senior artists. It's a very different proposition selling a Sally Gabori for sixty thousand dollars than it is selling a, an emerging artist for three. Mm. Yeah, and 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 it gets even trickier if you take them to art fair. So the art fair booth might end up being around twenty five thousand dollars for four days of public showing. Now you um. You have to be very, think very carefully about for that $25,000 outlay, I'm going to have to sell $60,000 worth of work to break even. $60,000 over four days. How do you achieve that? Well, if I put in my young artists and they're selling work for 1500 bucks, forget him. So you need to mix in some of those younger artists to say, I'm going to take you to Art Fair because it's really good for their careers and really good for their, you know, it gives them a real boost. Um, but economically it doesn't make any sense what you have to take is a couple of the senior artists and that's why this year you'll see the first two days were taken Roy Good mm. Roy's now in his late 70s lives around here actually lovely man kind of abstract modernism you know a very minimalist in form but he's a senior artist and his works will be selling for about twenty five to thirty thousand dollars a mm. painting the last three days of the show are going to be the group artists the group show for the younger artists because economically that's all I can do otherwise I've made a massive loss to begin with and the danger is of course then you close the gallery and yeah. then they've got fewer places to show mm. yeah. it's such a tricky model isn't it it's really hard and there's no subsidy there's no subsidies for the artists and there's no subsidies for galleries which is why you know it's very interesting in Australia for example where a huge part most commercial galleries in Australia the number one client is the taxpayer and that's because the state galleries have a remit to go out and spend in galleries for new acquisitions that's their job that does not happen in New Zealand with the taxpayer funded institutions with taxpayer funded curators what what have they got to risk I, 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 I have this really weird thing and, and the curators are lovely, you know, I'm sounding like they're the kind of, you know, the most evil people in the country. They're not, most of them are really lovely people, um, absolutely passionate about what they do, but I don't think any of them have felt any level of risk before. Mm. And I have a huge amount of respect for people in, that are running independent galleries in this country because they are putting their mortgage on the line every single month. They're actually doing it. I have so much more respect for them. I think they're in so, so, and yet all the kudos, all the thing goes to the institutions mm. and the institutional shows. That. It's actually all bullshit. Yeah. You know? It's, it's all safe. It's around the it's wrong all, way, isn't it? Totally. It's all safe. It's all sanitized. And, yeah. Uh, but galleries are at the real cutting edge of it. They're really putting risks to, to get that work on the mm. wall. Well, artists are under no contract. I mean, none of my artists are on a contract. At all. We, we have a one-page agreement, so there's a framework to operate within that says mm. you'll get paid this and then this will happen and then that'll happen. But most, you know, we're not working on a contractual basis. We um, They can go anywhere they want and show it any, anywhere in their time. Most artists I work with don't want the hassle of the gallery end of it. They want to be in the studio painting. Mm. And I talk about it a lot as a business partnership with them, that we handle that side. We handle the invoicing. We'll handle the presentation. Yeah. We'll handle the marketing for Which you. Which is huge. Yeah. But I don't have a business without the artists. Mm. You know? But the yeah. artists have a business without me, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, a, lot of the, a, a lot of the younger ones coming through are... Um, they are bucking that trend. A lot of them aren't, don't want to go with galleries. I think that's hard though. I think galleries give you a focal point. Mm. 
um, if nothing else, they give you a focal point once a year for your show and they pre-filter it. So people will generally listen if you've got a show on at the gallery, you know, yeah. they'll, they'll generally pop in. If and you're you've doing got a pop-up somewhere. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, it's weird. It's a, it's a very strange ecosystem and somehow artists have more power if they're, if they're not power, but more kudos i guess if they're represented yeah and it's always sat a bit uncomfortable with me that is um, that's what i was going to ask actually is it the holy grail for artists um i think it's a useful tool i don't know if it's the holy grail and i think that's changing um you still got a lot of artists who especially young artists who their ambitions are not real you know they, they tell you about their shoot the, what, what what their and their dreams are and they are, what a lot of them have to realize is it's probably, you know, literally sort of, you know, one in a million artists makes it to a significant international level. And I, and I like to remind young artists of that right away to mm. go, just do the thing. Don't worry about it. Just keep making, you know, mm, um, yeah. it's, it's really important because you take it back to the idea that it's, if they didn't do it, they would, a lot of artists I know, and I, I don't know if you consider yourself in this bracket, it's like, you have to do it. It's actually become such an ingrained part of your existence, your expression to the world that without it, you would shrivel up. You know? mm, yeah. And there are so many artists who are selling work, you know, really quite well through Instagram and um sort of artist-run spaces, group shows and in artist-run spaces or in community galleries or, you know, all those other areas. But a lot of artists still feel like their work isn't being completely validated or valued unless they're at a proper, you know, a proper gallery. Yeah, I think that's a loaded question. I think there's a lot of, a lot of insecurities with artists. You know, why... You know, the work that can be hung anywhere, right? I can put the work in my kitchen. I can put it in the gallery. I can put it in here. I can put it in an institution. Now, the context of where you're showing it changes the perception of that work mm. and how it's perceived and how it's valued. I'm really interested in that. I'm really interested in the transmogrification that happens when you take a painting that you've done in your studio and you lean it against the wall and then you put it up in the gallery. Why is it suddenly culturally more important? I'm really interested in that. Mm. It's, a, it's a huge area that I often say ours, you know. Um, if you look at somebody like Hugo Koha Lindsay, a, and I think his work is, is is fantastic, but he'll often skateboard using the detrius and the dust on his studio floor and just skateboard through that onto a canvas. And it's stuff that we would walk past in the street. It's stuff that we would walk past in a skip. We wouldn't give it two thoughts, you know. And yet when we put them in stretches and put them in an art gallery, what do they do? And that's been around for a long time. I mean, that's, mm. like, you know, you go back to the beginnings of conceptual art with, mm. with Marcel Duchamp, 1917, mm. you know, showing a fountain, the urinal when yeah. it turned upside down and, and it's sort of taking the uselessness of something, you know, removing its function and, and putting it in an art gallery so we are forced to look at it through form only as a found object. And that's, that's still really interesting for me in, in 2022 mm. how do we you know what 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 why does art have that power where does that power come from mm. how is that power constructed and if you actually look at uh, if you actually really look through history and how it's done you know it's um 
it's a product of late capitalism. Mm. Mm. And it's just, I mean, all the all the artists, the amazing artists I've spoken to in my small world of the Creative Matters podcast, to me, you know, they're they're all as valuable in the work that they make as is just is it's all incredible work that is coming from inside them. And it, you know, this amazing creativity and all the ideas behind it and the passion that the person has for the making, you know, why why is art sort of ranked and sort of quite hierarchical? You see, I'm I'm split on this because I do think, you know, there's a side to me as a sort of socialist who who, you know, came from Marxist background. So ideas of equality and equity are really, really important to me. But I do think you have to put a filter over, is that better than this? And that sounds really hypocritical of me. But the reason I say that is if I have to become the editor of what you experience in my gallery. And, you know, know, the the best way I kind of think to explain it is in, in terms of an equitable basis as I walk into a group of our uh, group of people and I give them all a guitar give them all one for free and go there's your guitar go away and play it we'll give you some lessons you know out of those 10 people one of them might end up playing the guitar really well and the other eight might be really shit and one might be terrible you know mm-hmm. completely tone deaf now the equitable part is you've given them access to a guitar but yeah. it does not mean they're all going to be good guitarists. And art is exactly the same. Anybody can paint, anybody can draw, anybody. And literally, you know, you've got the, the ability to do it. Um, go for it. But it doesn't mean it's going to be necessarily interesting, mm. you know. And, and and we've got to get over this thing. You know, I, I, I wrestle all the time with, is what I do interesting? You know, because the only person that's telling me it's interesting is me. I'm not having that external reinforcement. You could argue that the Scott Laurie Gallery, which I think is 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 kind of really exciting in terms of how we approach things, but you could argue that it's the least successful gallery in New Zealand on on a commercial level because we have we've we've not had the peer recognition that others yearn for. But the good news is we've not we've I've set it up to not look for it. And I think if you start to if you start to desperately want to be accepted and you start to really want to play that game, you lose something. Mm. You really lose something in yeah. the spirit of it, you know? And you start comparing yourself and, and watching what other people are doing. I, I could, I could, I, I, I promise you, I could turn that gallery overnight into a place that brings me in a million dollars revenue a year and I could take fantastic salary from it. The issue would be my heart would not be in the work that I was selling. Mm. I'd rather go and sell really nice. I love fabric. You know, I was just back from Paris recently and I went to some of the fabric shops and oh my gosh, you know, I mean, what? I just rather sell fabric. Fabric's beautiful stuff, you know. (laughs) Peacock feather velvet. Mm, Oh oh my God, I love velvet. Just. uh, Yeah. So what, I mean, if you were to mm -hmm. change your gallery to become more like that, what would you do? What would you have to do? You would sell stuff that people would buy that was really accessible that they didn't have to necessarily think about. So you sell a lot prettier stuff, a lot more accessible, probably a lot more expensive. There's also no correlation between the price of something and the cultural value of it. Um, I don't think, you know, you know what, what, one of the things I giggle about a lot in the art world is the price of price of artworks being sold, especially in the, in the auction market and everything. 
I cackle with laughter at that. There is no artwork in the world worth a million dollars. Not one. And to my dying day, you will never convince me otherwise. Oil and linen does not hold that. It doesn't hold that much value. You know, it's mm. never stopped a bullet. Be- Guernica never stopped us a bullet being fired. It never saved a single life, you know. Yeah. I, I do not believe it. I'll never be convinced that art can. And it's purely just the connection with the artist and their name. Oh, totally. It's, it's all manufactured, you know. It's part of the same thing. Mm. Don't, don't, don't be swayed by uh, the, the value of something and the price of something because those things do not equate. Mm. You know, just because something's sold for $145 million dollars. Uh, you know, I'm very controversial because I think Basquiat's one of the most overrated artists in the world. I kind of really like the work. It's quite illustration. It's quite cool. His life story is really funky, you know. But in terms of art, in terms of value to art, and no, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm never buying into it. Mm. I giggle every time one of his works sells for over a million bucks. It's incredible, It's, like, it's an in-joke, it? you know. Yeah. It's such an interesting, I mean, there's so many different interesting facets to this conversation, you know. So... What was what would your advice be to somebody who has approached a gallery and they haven't been accepted? Do is that a sign that their work is shit? No. The 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 question you've got to they've got to ask themselves is why are you approaching a gallery in the first place? What's the function of that? What do you want the gallery to do? Do you want them to um what what is it for your ego that needs massage that you need to be with a gallery? And on a functional level, what role do you want them to play in your career? Uh, is it just to make life easier for you because they're going to sell, they've got an audience, they've got a, a, or, you know, what? That's the, that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is the idea of self-guided um, own business galleries, um, own business artists, as in they, they operate their practice as a business. Mm. I think that's really exciting. Um, social media is your friend. Social media is free. Build up an Instagram account. Build up a Facebook account. You will soon know by the number of your followers if you're doing something well. There's your litmus test. Um, I, I get really excited about these channels. I think they're really good. You can also promote it. You can have a business account and, you know, for 25 US dollars, get that get that post in front of 5,000 people. Mm. There is no return on investment greater than social media in this country, if not around the world. So you'll pay 1500 bucks for a full, whatever it is for a, for a full page ad in one of the art magazines here. There is, how do you know what the return on investment is on that? Every artist I know wants to be in those magazines. Oh, I want a print ad. I want a print ad. And I was like, you know, and the people who run the magazines are amazing. They do a terrific job. Again, big passion project for them. But what, what does that mean? You know, it's like nobody's buying as a result of your ad. It just mm. it just gives you a really nice you know ego thing yeah uh, print, print 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 versus digital there's no conversation mm. around the return on investment the return on investment for Instagram we'll sell one point two works a month on average one point two um, through Instagram um, our ROI on print ads is um, zero really? and it's been zero for uh, coming up six years wow yeah that's very interesting that's a good thing for our listeners to know I think. And so coming back to the rejected artist, do they go, do they think, okay, that gallery is not the right fit for me, I need to try another gallery? Or do they need to sort of rethink what they're doing? Good, good stuff generally gets discovered. It's, it's, it's really weird. It's like good stuff floats to the top. I'm, I'm quite interested at the moment in working with older artists, um, sadly, they're mostly men, you know, in, in, in New Zealand at the moment who might be in their 
70s or 80s because it tended to be quite a blokey mm. thing then, mm. you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, and you uncover these people and you go to the studios and you sort of say, this stuff is brilliant. This is really important to the cultural conversation of this country. Let's get out of your studio and let's get on a gallery wall. I love that. I think there's some, Ken mm. Robinson, who passed away recently, you know, his son, Cyprian, um, has been digging out some of his work and I've just been blown out of the water by this stuff. It's been in, a, been in storage for 30 years really? and it's it's really good. So there's, the, 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 there is a role of uncovering that stuff. And they coming back to the artists, I, I think they need to ask themselves why and then go, well, what, what, what's the function of being with a gallery? And even if you're with a gallery, there's a lot of unhappy artists. Don't think your life's going to change because you're with a gallery. Mm. And you're certainly going to be poorer. For mm. a lot longer, because half you're not going to, half your money is going to go to them, just yeah. to pay their insurance and rates, and yeah, you know that's the thing. So. I mean, it, but it is. I think it is something that people feel they should be aiming for. A lot of artists. I I I think the whole ecosystem needs flipped on its head, mm. and the, this is why. Yeah, this is why digital opens up so many interesting areas for me, and. Digital gets bashed around a lot, and there's a, a good reason for that. You know, as soon as you get Zuckerberg changing the name of his company to Meta as a sort of, you know, as a cover for tr- trying to own the notion of the metaverse, you know, where where we have a digital life that is quite separate to our, our real life. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of bullshit being talked in that space, but there's actually a lot of excitement around it as well mm. um, because you are not constricted by space. Yeah. Um, so why don't you build your own digital gallery that when we put on a VR headset, we can come and explore your work in a gallery that would cost you a billion US dollars to build. Uh, but you've designed it yourself in the metaverse, which you can only access in a digital mm. format. But we will be looking at your digital art in a digital environment the way it's meant to be seen. Yeah. That opens up really interesting possibilities. So tech is a terrific place even for artists that are a wee bit more mature you know i'm saying to them you know roy good is a terrific example you know he's been introduced to instagram now and he loves it because he's seeing he's connecting with artists around the world he's seeing art he's seeing a lot of art from the comfort of his mm. his armchair you know and he's showing and displaying his work and telling loads of stories about mm. it it's brilliant to yeah. see an 80 year old on instagram right that's so good it's, it's really good digital's your friend as an artist you know and it's more yeah. important than the bloody stuffy old gallery to show yeah, your work it is changing isn't it and do you think sort of over across the world there are changes happening within galleries and the way work is shown. No, I think I think they're still showing the set things that they did in Dickensian times. Mm. So we're not behind in New Zealand. I don't think we're behind. I think we're very resistant to change. Um, if you look at digital art, and and you know we're moving into that as a as a. I'm interested in that on a personal level. And the reason I'm interested in it is because I don't have any of the answers. It's a sheer exploration. I'm just really curious. Mm. And curiosity in the art world is something that we should all, should all be inherent to every practice, mm. whether you're a gallerist or an artist. Um, but um, it's, it's the, I guess the constant search for something visually new as well. There's not a lot left to see in painting that's visually new. There's just not, you know. Mm. We, we, we work with some amazing artists who still surprise me on a daily basis. But digital opens up, it broadens that experience for the viewer. So it comes out of an object with a form and it starts to become an experience with a different visual form. 
Mm. You know, there's no, there's no, there's 3,000 people at the moment working full time on Apple's new virtual reality headset on virtual OS. That they, they reckon that's going to be, it'll either be the biggest damn squib that uh, uh, Apple have ever produced or one of the most exciting innovations in our time. That um, virtual reality, you know, art in virtual reality mm. is going to be very, very interesting to see where those forces meet. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in that. I find it far more egalitarian as well. I mean, you, if you look at, um, you know, for Fountain specifically, you know, one of the best things for me about Fountain is when you work, when you're in an art gallery and you have a painting on the wall for $10,000, there's only one painting. When you work in digital art, it's infinitely replicable. So there's no, there's no, there's no one, there's not one object. There's no mm-hmm. original. So if, if if you put on a digital art from me and I put on a USB stick, I then have a copy of the original. And when I pop it onto my computer or on a TV, then the TV's got a copy as well. What I'm really interested in is this notion that, yes, NFTs allow us to mint something as an original, mm. an addition of one. So it functions the same way as a painting. There is this artwork. I'm additioning it as one. going to cost you $10,000. Where I get really interested in it is then saying, right, well, I'm going to do an addition of five of that painting for $5,000. And I'm going to do an addition of 100 for $500 each. Now, if you're an artist like Harim Lee or Patricia Piccinini, you cannot buy a digital artwork for $70,000, $100,000. How are you going to get one? Whereas if I addition it specifically with the artist to say there's an addition of 100 at $500 each, you can own a verified copy with an NFT provenance certificate attached to it that nobody else can own. It's got your name on it for 500 bucks. The egalitarian possibilities of digital are outstandingly positive, mm. I think. Really exciting. Yeah. And then how do you actually enjoy that artwork that you've bought? This is it's a terrific question. And it depends what generation you are. Um, you, we tend to find people that are over 40, 45 seems to be the median age, cannot grasp the notion of looking at something digitally because they feel that the value of that experience is not the same as having a tangible object. Mm. So what, you know, human beings are quite funny. We covet things that are rare. We put terrific value on them um, because of the rarity and therefore a price that reflects that. And what digital does is it undermines that massively. And it says, well, you can... And what you find is is if you test that proposition of digital art with people over 40, they don't get it at all. Like, why would I want that to put on my TV? If you test that to under 30-year-olds, it's where they are anyway. That's where they're living and working and playing. They are there anyway. That's what they, they, the notion of that, they do not, the notion of them having a painting is far more problematic than having a digital artwork. Where do I put my painting? Mm. I'm in a rented house. I'll probably never be able to afford a house for 15 years. Why would I buy a large painting? I'm not yeah. going to be restricted. Whereas I could buy a six minute digital sequence of something and I'll play it through my TV because I'm streaming through it or through my iPad or through my phone. So they're carrying their collections with them. And I find, I've not got a lot of data on this, but I find for the young collectors, um, you know, Fountain's only sold a hand, handful of NFTs. It's not like they've sold hundreds of them. Mm. But the people who have bought them, um, they're either streaming through TVs in their home, through things like the Samsung screen, or they or they carry them around like little personal collections and they show them to people. Mm. 
mm. on their phones. That I, I struggle with that. I have to say, yeah, it's like I sometimes it's, go, "Oh, I don't know if they want my it's phone." It's interesting, but, though, isn't it? Yeah. And then, I mean, how how can that kind of artwork become an investment, or how can it be passed down from generation to generation? Well, you own the 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 beauty of the NFT is. You, you know, it's minted on the blockchain and the blockchain is indelible. There is no way for that blockchain to be deleted. There's a lot of misinformation. There's actually a lot of crap around um, how people view NFTs um, to their detriment, actually, because the rest of the world is flying away and, and people in New Zealand are so gloomy about them that the world is just bypassing New Zealand now. You know, uh, the, the most of the world's major art fairs have dedicated spaces for NFTs because they realise what they are, whereas people here think they're apes on motorbikes. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, 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 so these things are happening in the world already. Mm. And, um, and there's a certain mindset that comes through that goes, that is the asset, that is the object. It just happens to be digital. It happens to be created with ones and zeros. I mean, how the hell, I mean, if you're really honest, how the hell did we land in a place where pigment and the binding agent on canvas becomes the becomes the valuable thing in a world it's the same thing as ones mm. and zeros i mean mm. god it's not it's not more valuable inherently it's just because of a tradition yeah uh, and it's just a different medium a cult, cult, totally and and the controls around it you look at the artwork and you go that painting that pigment and binding agent on linen sold for 150 million dollars therefore it must be valuable most art historians will tell you that the, the price of the artwork the price paid for the artwork has no relation any with, with, with the cultural value of it mm. well, well well the best way to explain it is this if um so 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 harem lee who i represent the terrific artist she um will work for 18 months on an animation sequence to produce one work of art 18 months that might cost her 150 grand of her time and she needs to work with developers. She needs to work with specialist programmers on specialist machines that cost a shed load of money to operate. So she's done this thing. She's invested in it as an artist. She's directed the sequence. She's got involved in the programming of the sequence. Now, if you, at the moment, so she makes this artwork. She pops it on a USB stick. She gives it to me. Again, infinitely replicable. How do you ascribe value to that? to something that's infinitely replicable, that can be copied a million times and remains the same thing. Now, until the blockchain, until the advent of non-fungible tokens, we didn't have a way of saying, I'm going to addition this as five here, mm. So this new work, I'm going to embed into the blockchain five additions. And then if anybody buys it or resells it, we're going to attach their name to it, their ID to it. So publicly, anybody can see the provenance of that artwork at any time. They know there's five editions of it. So you ascribe value at that point to digital art. That's what makes digital so exciting. That's mm. why the time has come for digital to be seen as the same as oil on canvas yeah. or a bronze sculpture yeah. or something. And mm. then with resale with, um, through that platform, does the artist get paid? Again, they do. Um, there's a caveat to that. I mean, a lot of people say so. What you can do in the blockchain is you can put a little condition on the token that says anytime this is transferred, uh, 
a, a, a percentage will go to the artist. Now, in fact, it's seven and a half percent, but we're noticing in a lot of platforms they're shifting that up to 10%. So 10% of every resale will go to the artist. The reason we did it seven and a half percent is because obviously you've got a hundred grand of development money that needs to be paid back somehow. So mm. the seven and a half percent we embedded in there for the artist. There is the caveat to that is if you can only buy and sell on the same blockchain. So mm. if somebody wants to go to a different blockchain, a different cryptocurrency, then you 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 won't necessarily get that ten um, percent resale you were talking about. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's but true. that's the benefit of it, which I love, is the mm. longevity of um, you know if you, mm. you buy it and sell it. The, 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 look, technically you could shift it to another blockchain. It's probably a really dumb thing to do. You know, you keep it on the same blockchain mm. generally, so it's track traceable. Well, that's good. I mean, that's a good little introduction to NFTs. Yeah, that's yeah. a really interesting space. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. So back to running your gallery, what do you love most? What do I love most about running a gallery? And owning a gallery. Uh, the, the, the owning a gallery bit is really simple. It's just you're in, you're in art. And and you're you're baked into it and you're up to your ears in it every day. Obviously, there's no there's no part time switch on switch off proposition for art. You're either in art or you're not. You know, you're either doing it or you're not. There's no sort of dipping at the weekends. And I love that. I love the immersiveness of mm. that as a world because it's it's you know the best part is art is a bit really a bit of people. It's not about money. It's about connection. And uh, I love that you 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 get so many different perspectives. It's a terrific way of getting me lots of perspectives about life, um, and life outside your own experiences. Um, I yeah, I, th- I, th- I think it would be the 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 people thing around art. It's a it's a t- it's, it's a very good way of um, coming outside of your own perspective of life and seeing somebody else's life. And, and, and that's becoming more and more important because, um, you know, it gives us a chance to argue about things as human beings. When you look at a, a body of artwork or you look at a single piece and you can argue like buggery about it and still leave the room as friends. And we have very few places left as human beings to do that. We are allowed by default to own our relationship with the piece that we're looking with or not. And nobody really minds. So if you and I were to go to the same gallery and rave about the stuff we liked, I might, I might not be able to stand what you liked, but I'll always respect your decision and we'll leave and we'll go for lunch mm. and we'll still keep talking about yeah. it. And I, I love that fact. I think that's really important to cherish that you mm. don't have to like everything. Yeah. yeah. And I think being a part of a group who value creativity and who are being creative and who are artists is a really special, amazing place to be. You know, I find just with the people I speak with on the podcast, you know, they're all incredible people who have got so much to offer the world and who, like I say in my intro, have who actually enrich my life. Mm-hmm. And if I have a little break with the podcast, I... I miss it. Yeah. Because I just love meeting all these beautiful people who have got so many interesting things to talk yeah. about and they notice so many interesting things in the world. Yeah. You know? I think it's also our duty to support the arts, you know? 
I think any it's, it's all our duty to support the arts. Um, more so if you've got money, if you're wealthy, it's absolutely your duty to buy from the arts because nobody else can afford to do it. Um, so, so, so I'm not dissing rich people. They have a very, very important role to play in the arts. Mm. Um, but like you, I'm, 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 there's a celebration of, of life that comes through art that you do not get with anything else. Mm. No, I agree. Totally. And, um, I mean, you do have an amazing reputation, Scott, that all the people I've spoken to adore <laughs> you. <laughs> they don't know me. They don't know me. Yeah. You know, I think you bring something different through your gallery to the art world. What do you think it is that is different and how do you think other gallerists view you and what you do? They are, the gallery scene's not particularly collegiate. It's quite weird. It's, um, I find it quite a New Zealand thing, actually. It's like, it's almost like people, it's like people want you to fail. It's really weird. It's like this, uh, yeah, you'd expect this sort of huge thing. It's like, we're all in it for the arts. Nobody's making any money. Let's support each other in as an industry. And there's this really weird thing around, like, you know, you try something new and, People don't like it. They get quite up, upset by it. Um, but I would like to think, uh, uh, I would like to think amongst all the gallery peers that, you know, I have a huge respect for what they do because I think they, because now that I've seen what they do, yeah, I, I, I have nothing but respect for what they do on a daily basis because very, very few of them are, you know, driving Porsches at this stage. Um, so I'd hope, I'd hope to think of a modicum of respect that you, you would... Where I'm doing a fairly decent job, but it's never been a big priority in mine. I, I didn't come from the the uh, a, a gal. I've never run a gallery before, so I never knew knew really what I was doing, and I've made a heck of a lot of mistakes. But by framing it as a practice as opposed to a business, that's been very helpful for me because mm. it's just like an artist where it's like you know you're going to have three people coming to your studio and critique your work. They're all going to have different opinions. You can't put too much emphasis when you run a gallery on what people think of you. If anything, what I think it has done uh, is I think it's exposed the inequities of the system of the arts in New Zealand, which to me from creative New Zealand right through to the institutions needs completely blown up and restarted again with the artists at the heart and centre of everything. Mm. Well, I think that you are on a mission to make changes in that area you know i hope so yeah i hope so yeah and the way you celebrate young artists emerging artists i think is incredible that's a that's a lovely that is incredibly rewarding that you go you know you've got a bit of privilege you got a bit of money you got a bit you've you know i've gone through i'm 52 i've I've kind of owned properties before i still have a big mortgage and everything but you think at the very least give over some of that gallery space to people that would never normally have it. And one of the most recent shows, the Moana Arts Show, um, that was curated by Sefton Rani, and we got a lot of community buy-in. I mean, three or 400 people came into that opening. One of the loveliest things, and now there was work in there that I, with my filter, would probably have never shown in the gallery, but I was a better person for it because it was shown. I took a real hands-off approach and I said, no, no, Sefton, you're the curator, you bring people in and I will show it. 
and I will show it to great effect. It's, and it's the same way I'll mark it in the same way as every other show. And gosh, that was an eye opener for me. It, it was a very humbling experience for me that I said, you know, it doesn't always have to be predetermined by me over what's good or what I think is interesting. Um, I, I, it was a, I was hugely honoured by that show. I felt mm. incredibly humbled by it. And I got really good feedback from people in the community. You know, Marcus Hipper was on in the main gallery and that was a really interesting one in itself. Um, you know, Marcus works on a building site and then at night time goes home and, and does this work. And we had the lads, uh, four lovely young men who came in, fluoro jackets, big muddy boots. I'll take my boots off at the door. And they came and I could see they were lost when they walked in. They were sort of like, where the heck is this, you know? And I made a beeline for them and I said, come on, I'll, I'll show you around. And, you know, you, you sort of make them feel a wee bit more comfortable when you're sitting there going, you know, I bet you're wondering why you're here and all this bullshit around art and everything, but let me talk you through the show, you know. You make them feel comfortable. That The moments like that are really rewarding for me because mm. if I had never gotten to the arts, thanks to a couple of fantastic school teachers, I don't think my life would have been as enri enriched as it was. Mm. And I try and offer that up we're going to do Moana Artists 2023 actually it's going to be an annual Brilliant. event now just for and that opened up that we had people um, who'd been working as artists for 20-30 years and had never shown on a gallery wall how amazing and it was, that was, a, real, it was that. a real joy you know it was a real privilege and for what, us all and what do you mean by Moana Artists so Moana is is, is really interesting we, we um, you know I, I was using the term Pacifica quite a lot and it was actually one of the the Sefton Rani who's, who's Cook Islands and he said to me well I think we're going to frame it as Moana um, because we've got artists from all over the region up to Nui um, you know Tonga Samoa Cook Islands we've got so they said we um, well, we'll, we, we'd like to call it Moana and it's a term I now use mm. yeah, Moana rather than Pacifica which I think was a, a colonial construct I'm not quite sure and that includes New Zealand Pacific Island yeah, area. Yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah, I it's, like it. It's, it's a, I feel, you know, I remember saying to Andy Lelesa when I said, you know, I feel you've, you've, you've got to take me on your journey because this is not my culture. Mm. This is not my background. You know, I'm coming in as, as this white Scottish bloke a, a, into your domain and you need to tell me what the protocols are and how I should act accordingly. And it was really lovely because the Moana Artist Show was me at the bottom of that inverted pyramid. I was just a wee thing at the bottom mm. and the community was up the top and I thought, this is the way it needs to be. Yeah. This is, it was such an important insight for me thinking, actually, I'm, I'm plankton in the great scheme of things, you know, and you've got this hugely powerful, very colourful, very intelligent and uh, hugely ambitious culture. That needs to have the... That, that. And Andy said to me later, and he said to me, you know, he says, you're the... It's the first time a major dealer gallery has devoted the whole gallery to Moana Aris. And I was like, and I, I thought he was kidding me. I said, there's no way there must have been. That is surprising. Of, yeah, yeah, I mm. was quite surprised too. That's great though, um, that you're doing it. Mm. And I love the idea of the annual show. Aye, that's, that's going to come up every year. Yeah, now. that'd be amazing. It's, it's good. It's too, it's too important to not... And, and we'll have a different selection panel and we'll have a different... Three of those artists that came through, um, Loa and Sean Hill and um, Linda Vailua, um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take them on and develop their work. 
I would never have experienced that work if they were not included in that show. Mm. I would never have heard about them. And that sounds brutal, but I just, I just would have never had that mm. connection to that community. And I remember going to bed that night. It was a long, long day. You know, we'd put on food, we'd catered it and everything. And so many people to meet. And I remember going back and that, that gave me a huge source of pride. I felt like I contributed something back to the country I lived in, you know, that was, that was a really nice mm, that's feeling. Yeah, that's it was amazing. Really good. And you obviously love that part of your, of your job, not just dealing with the artists, but the people. The people. It's all about, art's about people. Art's it's, it's not about anything else. Mm. It's about human mm. beings. Yeah. It's about connecting to other human beings uh, physically, mm. you know, when they come in the gallery or through mm. their work, you know, and also broadening your horizons and giving you new perspectives into things that you would normally have not considered you know but only on the planet for what 85 years if you're lucky 90 years if you're really lucky and um you know i've not got that much time mm. and i've not got that much time to learn about other people as much as we would probably like and that the purpose of turning up to an art gallery and especially shows like modern artists is you can learn so much Every different work in that show told a different story, and it was a deeply personal story, and it was often intertwined with the culture of, and the idea of home, mm. um, and ideas of home to me are quite interesting. Mm. You know, yeah. do you have culture, and if you don't have land, you know, mm. so what happens when the what happens when the sea level rises, and a lot of these places are underwater? Yeah, does the culture exist? Can we transfer that cultural sovereignty into a digital space where it will outlive a physical space? Yeah? That's true. It's really interesting. Mm. Yeah. And um, I guess we'd better start thinking about letting you go. Aye. Because... I know. Sorry, I talked for too long. <laughs> no, You're not have at a all. job changing that into that. Hack it anywhere you want. Edit oh, no, no. Look, I have loved our conversation. I feel like we could talk about so many more things. <laughs> But I think it's been a really nice little glimpse of um, what you do and what you believe in. And I think a lot of our listeners will find it very useful. Um, and just, you know, in the way that they view a dealer gallery and how it fits into their practice. Well, well, well the instruction I would say at the end is come and visit, come and, come and pop in. Whether you've ever been in a gallery or not, come in and pop in. Say you've listened to the podcast and come in and I'll give you a tour around and make gallery visitation a part of your... Galleries are always pleased to see you. Mm. You know, they really are. They're, 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 the, the, val the validation for the, art the artist, as I said at the very beginning, is the work being seen. Um, it's not to buy something. It's the work being seen. The artists will often say... Was it busy in the gallery today? How many people saw the show? Mm. That's that's that, that that's what's important to them. Yeah, is you know I've done this body of work for a year and a half, and did people see it? Mm. Yeah, and how did they respond? So your beautiful gallery, Scott Laurie Gallery, is in Coles Ave in Mount Eden. Coles Ave at the Steelworks. Yeah, and Coles Ave is an invented street of Valley Road. It's at the Mount Eden Village end. And uh, you'll see a little lane called Coles Avenue on the lamppost. You trundle up there, there's two parking spaces. Can he miss the gallery? I'm in um, Shed 10. Okay, well, that is brilliant to know because I'm going to come and visit. And, um, yeah, I'm sure a lot of people would love to come and see your gallery and meet you, Scott. So thank you very, very much for your time. You are a beautiful man, as I was 
told. And I really appreciate talking to you and, <laughs> and hearing you. all your amazing ideas. And yeah, thank you so much for coming yeah, on the show. Yeah, most welcome. Like, I'm delighted to anytime.